Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live for Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning and welcome to 2024. Today is the first day of the rest of your life, so let's get on with it, right? Uh, This morning we begin a 12-week sermon series, brand new, will take us up to Easter, in the New Testament epistle of 2 Timothy. But before we get started, we need to ask the question, why? Why this book? Why this study of 2 Timothy? It's been almost 11 years since my father passed away and I miss him. I was given a very wonderful gift Two years before he died, he had exploratory surgery where they found, and I quote, rare and aggressive cancer. You say, how was this a gift? Well, it gave me two years to spend as much time with my father and ask as many questions as I could. It was my hope and desire that I would discover a few more stories, a few more insights, a few more lessons from this man of God that had been my earthly father. Now, I need to let you know that Jim Roden Sr., actually different middle name, but a lot of people said senior and junior, Jim Roden Sr. was a man of few words. And I will confess, I did not get as much out of him as I had hoped. However, however, those were precious days of relationship with my father. Social Commentator and critic Matthew Arnold once said these words, truth sits on the lips of dying men. And and what he meant by that is that uh, a knowledge that the end is near can produce a special sense of clarity in intensity and urgency. And that is what 2 Timothy is like. The Apostle Paul who wrote this letter to Timothy would be put to death by the Roman Emperor Nero for being a leader in what was described as the Christian movement. In 2 Timothy are Paul's last words. They are words of clarity, intensity, and urgency. Furthermore, the days in which the Apostle Paul wrote wrote this epistle were dangerous days for all Christians And these days would get even harder for those left behind, for those like Timothy. In fact, in 2 Timothy, it says in chapter 3, verse 1, in the last days there will come times of difficulty. We live in these times. I was reading a book review by Jim Davis and Michael Graham called The Great Dechurching. And in that book, they make this statement, we are currently experiencing the largest and fastest religious shift in the history of our country. They claim that 40 million Americans that once attended church at least once per month now attend church less than once per year. The solution that they offer, the way forward is not by creating something completely new, but by returning to something very old. And their answer is healthy churches with a culture 
of discipleship and evangelism. People, we are in times of difficulty, and the answer then is the same answer today. That we would be a healthy church made up of healthy believers because we are committed to the mission of evangelism and discipleship. That is 2 Timothy. Let's talk a little bit about the date and occasion of the writing. 2 Timothy belongs to a larger collection called the Pastoral Epistles. 1 Timothy and Titus came before 2 Timothy. 1 Timothy and Titus were written by the Apostle Paul just after being released from his first Roman imprisonment, a much better experience than the one from which he wrote 2 Timothy. In fact, it was described, his first imprisonment was described as house arrest. And we actually end the book of the Acts of the Apostles with the Apostle Paul having quite a splendid time in Rome, chained to Roman guards, getting to know their lives and sharing the hope of the gospel. He was able to receive guests and friends and seekers who wanted to know more about Christianity. And so he was totally funded by the Roman state under this house arrest. And he knew he would be released. And shortly after being released, he wrote first in 2 Timothy. Well, according to the 4th century church historian Eusebius, Paul was arrested again during the reign of Nero. This imprisonment would be far worse than the first. 2 Timothy was written from a dark, cold, lonely Roman dungeon sometime before the years of 64 to 66 AD. And Paul completely understood that this would be his last. He would not come out alive. To make matters worse for Paul, for one reason or another, all of his partners in ministry had left him except for Dr. Luke. This was a dark night of the soul for the Apostle Paul. Let's talk a little bit about who it's written to. Who was Timothy? By the time we get to 2 Timothy, he's likely 37 to 38 years old. If we look at his backstory, he's from mixed religious parentage. His mother and his grandmother were Jewish, but had likely converted to faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord and Messiah. While his father, being Greek, never bowed the knee to Jesus. Timothy was brought up in the Jewish scriptures, though not to the degree that he was circumcised according to the law. Likely led to faith by, in, in Christ by the Apostle Paul on Paul's first missionary journey. So committed to Christ, everyone in his church saw his devotion and recommended him to the gospel ministry. We have the uh, elders, along with the Apostle Paul, prophesied concerning Timothy, put hands on him, commissioned him for vocational gospel ministry. And then we can have a record throughout the books of the New Testament where we see that he traveled extensively with the Apostle Paul for at least 12 years. Timothy shows up in the New Testament writings of Acts and Romans 
First and Second Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, and First and Second Thessalonians. We discover that Paul's prophecy that we read in Acts 20. Paul is on his way to Jerusalem. He's in a beach town. And the elders from Ephesus come down to pray with him and for him. Timothy is there in that gathering. We actually read it in our scripture time this morning. But his prophecy had come true. What was the prophecy? That ravaging wolves, false teachers would rise up, not from outside of the church, but inside the church, from so-called Christian brothers and sisters. False teachers would rise up and ravage the church, not sparing the flock. False teaching would infect the church in Ephesus. And the Apostle Paul knew he needed a trusted pastor with the character and the skills to lead the church in Ephesus in church revitalization. So we discover in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul appointed and commissioned Timothy as the lead pastor of the church of Ephesus. Timothy was a great man of God. However, as with any man of God or woman of God, he did not walk on water. And I say that to signify this. Timothy had some personality and character and physical weaknesses. We get a clue throughout the New Testament writings and Acts and First and Second Timothy in particular what some of these deficiencies and struggles were. First off, he was timid. He was not a confident person. He was known to be passive at times, shied away from difficult leadership tasks and duties. And finally, we discover that at times he is physically sickly, stomach ailments. So what is the purpose of 2 Timothy? The conversation between these two. 2 Timothy is a clear and intense and urgent call to Timothy to continue the good fight of faith, to persevere in the gospel ministry despite adversity, difficulty, and suffering. While Paul himself approached the end of his own life, I want you to notice just a, a few excerpts. At the end of 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is near. I have fought the fight, I have finished the race, I have kept my, the faith. And what is his admonition? If we could sum it up in one verse, it would be 2 Timothy 4.5. As for you, Timothy, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Why? Because Timothy at times did not feel like it. He struggled. Nobody said the ministry or the mission of Christians is easy, but it is worth it. And this was the encouragement. Words of clarity, intensity, and urgency. Shall we begin? We're going to go through verses 1 through 7 this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1 through 7. Follow along with me. 
Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. According to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience. Hit pause for a moment and just, I want you to see this. We're going to come back to it. But Paul recognizes God's work of sovereign calling in his life. The will of God as well as his ethnic and religious heritage when he mentions his ancestry. I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers day and night or night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I might be filled with joy. The word for long here means intense, strong desire. And and we see that Paul has a memory of Timothy. Maybe it's a report. Maybe someone comes to find him in Rome with a report of how Timothy is doing in Ephesus. Maybe it's a a Holy Spirit-inspired memory as he prays for various guys that he's ministered to and mentored along the journey, or maybe pastors that he knows throughout the Roman Empire. For whatever reason, he remembers Timothy, and he remembers in particular tears. We don't know for sure, but This was the scene that I just mentioned from Acts 20. Paul was heading to Jerusalem, and the elders and and all of his traveling buddies, which included Timothy, were there at the beach, and they begged of him, please don't go to Jerusalem, you're going to be arrested, and they're going to kill you. And they wept great tears of sorrow because they loved this man so much. Could these be the tears? Perhaps. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith. It's a great word, sincere. Anapokritos. Ana meaning no. And the word for hypocrite. He had a sincere, unfeigned, nothing fake about his spiritual commitment, his testimony, his witness, his life, his integrity, nothing hypocritical. However, a genuine spiritual faith does not insulate us from hard, difficult, scary. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure... Uh, I stand convinced. No shadow of doubt in my mind concerning your commitment to faith. I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear. The word there, fear, delias. In extra-biblical literature, it's used for one who flees in the face of battle. A way to describe cowardice. And Paul tells Timothy, 
For God gave us a spirit not of cowardice, shrinking back in the face of of sacrifice or difficult or scary. This is not what you were given, Timothy, but one of power and love and self-control. Now, this is fascinating because this was not written to us. This is the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy. What in the world does this have to do with us? Bystanders who have intercepted this emotionally charged personal letter from the Apostle to his most beloved student. What could this possibly have to do with us this morning? Well, I've got three quick thoughts. First off, this is my job description, or a large portion of my job description, and at least Pastor Tyler's job description. That this is the job description, along with First Timothy and Titus. This is the one that we need to execute on, not the one made up by culture, or tradition, or church history. This is the template. Secondly, you should know what to expect from spiritual leadership. You should know what to expect from effective pastors. Why? To not only hold us accountable, but listen, man, there's just a lot of turnover in the church. People move. Pastors move. Things happen. And if we're in these perilous, dangerous times, and we know that false teachers are going to rise amongst us, it behooves you, it behooves us to know what to expect from spiritual leadership. And then finally, throughout the ages, these pastoral epistles have been read devotionally and taught expositionally in the church, churches in every nation, culture, and age. This is devotional material for all believers with something to learn for everyone, no matter what your age or, or when or where we live or, or your stage of spiritual maturity. In fact, a little bit later on in 2 Timothy, same book, chapter 3, it says all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man, you could add, or woman, uh, of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So we know this book is for everyone, not just for pastors or spiritual leaders. And then secondly, we actually have this admonition from the Apostle Paul that we are to watch his life, listen to his teaching, and imitate him. Two times, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, to the whole church in Corinth, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And then in his letter to the church at Philippi, Philippians chapter 3, brothers, join in imitating me. So for that very reason, just to hear the heartbeat of the apostle from this dungeon and say, how is he handling adversity? How is he on mission? How is he caring about others? We are to watch him, listen to him, and mimic him. So what are some of the things that we can see this morning? All scripture being God-breathed and is profitable for us. 
and the example of Paul, what can we see in these first seven verses? Here's a few things. First off, this is your first fill in the blank. Everyone has a God story. Everyone. I want to give you some homework. Not right now, but you need to go and read Acts chapter 9. What you will discover in Acts chapter 9 is backstory material. And it should be titled something like The Conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Who is Saul of Tarsus? Saul of Tarsus is the Apostle Paul before he met Jesus and received him as personal Lord and Savior. But after that event, he became Paul the Apostle, the one who wrote this letter. You see, God was at work in Paul long before he met Jesus. In fact, if you read his backstory, Saul of Tarsus hated Jesus of Nazareth. Thought of him as a false messiah. And his followers were to be destroyed. Not just mocked, not just engaged in social commentary and criticism, but taken out of the city limits and stoned to death. So convinced that the gospel of Jesus was false. And yet Paul, looking back, sees that even in these days, God was at work in his life. This is why he introduces himself in this letter, verse 1, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. The word for will there is desire. God's heartbeat. Paul, I've got a desire for you and it will be fulfilled. You're going to be my sent one. It's no wonder that he introduces the first letter to Timothy in like manner. 1 Timothy 1.1, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God. This is even stronger than will or desire. Command is a royal edict. The king of the universe has declared, you shall be my sent one. Paul imagining himself to be his sent one is actually murdering his people. And yet Paul looks back and goes, yep, and God was right, and God was at work, even when I was ravaging the church and killing Christians. We even see this in verse 3. His family heritage, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors. That not only was God at work directly in his will and his royal edict, but Paul looks at his ethnic, national, and religious heritage, and he sees that God was at work in him long before he met and received Jesus as Lord and Savior. So it's no wonder that he would bring this up for Timothy as well. Verse 5, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. Timothy, before you met Christ, look what God was doing in your, in your family. And then he brings this up again in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He says, from childhood, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. That's the Bible. 
which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Here's how it works. Paul's spiritual heritage and God's story, Timothy's spiritual heritage and God's story leads us to our spiritual heritage and God's story. Your backstory, your family of origin, your friends, your neighbors, an aunt, an uncle who shared the gospel with you or took you to church, a church, a pastor, a sermon, situations and circumstances, stirrings in your heart, uh, seeing something beautiful in, in that, that moment of sublimity or an epiphany, something just clicks, but also your hurts, wounds, and pain, your triumphs, victories, and joys. God has been at work in and through all of these things in order to lead us to him. Because everyone has a God story. And I'm saying believers, pre-believers, non-believers, anti-believers, everyone has a God story. Because God loves us and wants the best for us. He carefully and strategically woos us. Even non-believers. How do I know this? It's all over the scriptures. Ecclesiastes 3.11. He has put eternity into man's heart. Acts 17, the apostle Paul is preaching to a bunch of pagans. And he says these words. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. He's saying the days in which you were born and even the zip code. Or the street address were designed by God. Why? He answers it. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. And then the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Rome explaining how this all works. He says these words. What can be known about God is plain to them. And by the way, in in the context, anti-Christians that don't want God. He says... It's plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. God is strategically and carefully wooing us to him even before we believe. And then add to this, The ministry of the Holy Spirit who came at Pentecost. In the upper room discourse, John chapter 16, verse 8, Jesus promises the coming of the Holy Spirit. And he states the Holy Spirit's role in society. When he comes, the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So even pre-believers, non-believers, anti-believers, God's witness is all over this creation. And his spirit is here preparing people, men and women, for eternal life. Everyone has a God story. I was given this book a few weeks or months ago by Barb Tompkins. Barb, thank you. Um, Oz Guinness, Signals of Transcendence. This is easy reading. These are our stories or accounts of some very famous men who bowed the knee to Jesus Christ and how God got a hold of them through these kinds of things. 
uh, men that you'll recognize some of these names, Malcolm Mugridge, G.K. Chesterton, C.S. Lewis, Leo Tolstoy, Whitfield Guinness, and many others. Recommend, easy reading. But the point of this, it's really a, a gospel tract, an evangelistic tool to take note of all the ways in which God is stirring and wooing those moments to remind us of God's story in our life. What is your God's story? What is your backstory? Can you see where God showed up in your journey, even if it's a hard and heartbreaking part of the journey, that God is using that faithfully because he loves you. He loves me. And this is important, even as we move through the text, we're going to come back to this. God's faithfulness is so important that is in these verses. What else can we see and apply to our own lives? Here's the second thing. All believers have the gift by the Spirit. Almost so much that we could call the gift the Spirit, but not quite. All believers have the gift by the Spirit. Verse 6, Paul admonishes Timothy, fan into flame the gift of God. The word there for gift is charisma. The charisma of God which is in you. Timothy had a gift, a charisma of God. And we discover in the first letter that he is tempted to neglect it. This is what it says in 1 Timothy 4.14. Do not neglect the charisma which you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. So what is this charisma? What is this gift? We have a further clue in verse 7 when it says, for God gave. A gift is something that is given. I, I think that there, between these two verses, there's a parallel. For God gave us something. What is the gift? If, if verse 7 describes it, it's, it's a spirit. The word there is pneuma. God gave us a pneuma, not of fear or cowardice. A.T. Robertson, a great Southern Baptist Greek scholar, states this about these two verses. Here, pneuma in verse 7 is the charisma of verse 6. And what is it? In his words, the human spirit as endowed by the Holy Spirit. The human spirit as endowed by the Holy Spirit. When a man or woman comes to faith in Christ and the Holy Spirit comes on that person, their own spirit is transformed and the transformation does not lead to a kind of timidity and cowardice and fearfulness. That is not what God does in a man or a woman by his Holy Spirit. What is the gift? If we can put it in, in clear terms of what I think Paul is talking about, the gift is a unique call to a unique ministry as well as the heart and ability to fulfill it. This is what the Holy Spirit gives sons and daughters. And every believer has a similar gift. A unique call to a unique ministry as well as the heart and ability to fulfill it. That's why Paul changes the phrase in verse 7, for God gave us. Timothy, there's a gift for you. 
God gave us. Everyone has this thing. And it's a spirit, not of fear. The gift is the spirit of a God-infused man or woman. And it's not one of fear. But God gave us not a spirit of fear. Interesting, Paul would use the same language in his letter to the Romans in Romans chapter 8, verse 15, talking to everyone in the church there. He says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Similar language, receiving a kind of, of spirit. And this is where, where he starts with the idea of slavery and bondage and fearfulness. Let's talk about that just for a moment. What is the spirit of slavery or the spirit of fear more precisely? What is the spirit of fear? How does it show up in Christians? How does it show up here in our church? How does it show up in my life? And what I would say is it's a kind of spiritual fight, flight, or freeze. I know I'm using psychological terms, but that's exactly what fear does to us. Fight, flight, or freeze. But this is spiritual. Yes, it will impact us emotionally and intellectually and relationally. But it is spiritual. Fight, flight, or freeze. What does it look like when it's fight? You know, it's possible that we could see so-called Bold Christians who, quote, stand up for Jesus. And we are just so, wow, that person is just so courageous. It's also possible that we have mistaken spiritual fear for courage. And what the person is actually doing is trying to prove something to themselves that is not of the Spirit and not led by God. They are trying to prove themselves or show off. How do I know this? Because I have been that person. Put up your dukes, I'm unashamed, and do or say something stupid and destructive. But I took a stand. What about flight? This is the person who refuses to address difficult or uncomfortable issues because of being fearful of adversity, pain, hard work, conflict, or rejection. Afraid of the price tag of disagreement. Would rather keep superficial peace to remain liked and included instead of a calm, confident willingness to speak up, disagree, and risk being disliked. So they freeze or, or flee. How do I know this? Because again, I've been this person. Freeze is the last one. Person that's terrified to the point of not being able to function. Move forward in life. Failure to launch. And instead, medicate with sleep or sex or porn or booze or entertainment or now here's the new thing, gummies edibles, THC-laced consumables, or recreation and leisure, Peter Pan, 
unwilling to grow up just chasing the next big wave or the next big mountain. They're running away, unable to function in the real world. And all of these can be nuanced or pictures of kinds of spiritual fear. Let's finish Romans 8.15, though, to see what, what God has for us. For we did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have respe- received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Power, love, and self-control. Proverbs 28, verse 1, the wicked flee when no one pursues. That's what they do. They don't have the spirit of adoption. They're still in slavery. They flee when no one's coming after them. They're terrified, triggered, insecure. But Solomon would say the righteous are bold as a lion. And that doesn't mean, I'm bold, let's fight. No, remember, that can be a a, a fear response. They're just, lions aren't freaking out. The king of the the savannah. They're bold and secure. They don't have to shoot off their mouth. They don't have to flash. They They don't have to show off. Fearfulness is not the gift. It's not the spirit. But power and love and self-control is. What does this mean? The word power is dunamis. And unfortunately, we have the word dynamite. It's powerful, but it's chaotic and destructive. But dunamis, this kind of dunamis is not powerful and destructive and chaotic. It's powerful and constructive and purposeful. Acts 1.8 speaks of the dunamis that we have by the Spirit. You will receive dunamis when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my martis. It's where we get the word martyrer. Willing to take a stand calmly and die facing in the direction of the cross. A witness is the translation. You will receive dunamis when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. This is the power, power for witnessing and being a witness. Love, this is the word agape. It's an unconditional, committed, tenacious love. This is a knockdown, drag out, hardcore commitment to bless everyone around us, even the difficult, exhausting, and frustrating people in our life. Agape. Dunamis agape and sophronismu. This is an amazing word. Special word that describes a man or woman of God as one who is sensibly minded and balanced. The Amplified Version says, calm and well-balanced and discipline and self-control. So the spirit that God's given us is one of dunamis and agape and mental clarity and emotional stability. Not fear. Not fear. God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Here's the final sub fill in the blank. Everyone is spiritually responsible. And if you notice, I actually broke it into its, into its subsequent parts. Response, able, everyone. Even Paul in Romans 1.18 said, so that they are without excuse. 
But here in this text, Paul says, for this reason I remind you, Timothy, fan into flame the gift of God which is in you. See, fire in the ancient world was never caught at, kept at a, a regular blaze. But rather, hot coals. And when needed, these hot coals would be stirred in with kindling and air, oxygen, to get the fire going again, to bring it to life. And here we have this amazing word in the Greek, fan into flame is one word, anasoporeo, made up of three parts, ana for again, zoe, which means life, and pur, which means fire. You put them together and you get this great, great Greek word picture to bring a fire to life again. See a picture from an elk hunt one year ago. It was down to 17 degrees. It was dark and cold and we camped out. No, we don't have a trailer. We have a tent and down jackets. Our water bottles were frozen. It was cold. That fire was precious. We are responsible to fan into flame again the flames of our heart. The, the Greek verb is in the present active infinitive. The active part means Timothy has to do it. He has to do it. And so do we. We're responsible. We don't sit around, but God, you made me this way. I don't feel like it, and I feel so bad. We have a responsibility. How important it is to stoke the flames of our conscience and heart and passion for God. And to do it all the time. Why? Because I have my own Timothy issues, slackness, laziness, procrastination, timidity, passivity, apathy are nipping at my heels. Can you identify? Good news. We have everything we need. We don't have to beg God. 2 Peter 1.3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So here's the bottom line for the message today. He has given us everything we need, but we are response-able. Able to respond. We are response-able to fan it into flame that we might finish well. Amen? Got some good news for you. The ushers are going to come forward and start to uh, distribute elements for communion. This is for those of us who have a, a, a relationship with Jesus and we're reminding ourselves of the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. You don't have to be a member of the church. You just have to believe in Christ and have received him as your personal Lord and Savior to participate with us. So that's called Open Communion for all believers, okay? But listen, I need to tell you about the Savior. If you struggle with spiritual lukewarmness or, or coldness or apathy, I need, you to tell you, I need to tell you about my Savior. Isaiah the prophet said of Messiah, a bruised reed he will not break, in a faintly burning wick, he will not quench. Are you a smoldering wick? The fires of your heart have grown cold. 
fear, timidity, passivity, sickliness. And Jesus loves you. And he's not here to snuff you. However, he holds you responsible to stoke the fires of your soul. To fan into flame once again. And how do we do that? How do we do that? I believe the answers are here in the text and lead us right into communion. You ready for four, four things quickly? How do we fan into flame that we might be on fire and finish well? First off, remember. Four times the Apostle Paul in these seven verses talks about remembering. He begins with remembering the gospel. In verse 1, he says, the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. Because he died, we live. That's the gospel. Remember, remember the gospel. And then Paul talks about his own backstory and Timothy's backstory. And we need to remember our backstory. Remember I said it's really important. Remember God's faithfulness to you. Even when you were an enemy of Christ and did not believe and he loved you. Remember. Secondly, confess for a good conscience, a clear conscience. Paul talks about this. He serves God as his ancestors with a clear conscience. That comes from the confession and repentance of sin. Tell God you're sorry for what you did. And then find a, a safe Christian brother or sister and confess to them. That's James chapter 5. Don't just keep it with you and God. You'll be forgiven, but it will still hold power over you. Confess to one another and pray for each other that you might be healed. Remember and confess. Give thanks. He begins, I thank God whom I serve. This is the word Eucharista. Giving of thanks. If you've got a Catholic background, this is called the what? The Eucharist. Giving thanks. Be thankful in all things. Remember. Confess. Give thanks. And then finally... As we receive and imbibe and take into ourselves and hug the broken body and shed blood of Jesus, would you also hug his call on your life and his empowerment for the ministry he has for you, even if it is hard? I'm going to cheat. I'm going to take one of Pastor Tyler's verses from next week. 2 Timothy 1.8. This is the immediate next verse. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Remember, confess, give thanks, hug the mission and the hardship. What a privilege to serve the Lord. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He blessed it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
After dinner, he took the cup and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. The new covenant was a promise that God would change us from within. Give us his spirit. Give us the spirit, not of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. Transformation. New covenant. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. And Paul said in his letter to the church at Corinth, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, you remember it until he comes. And until he comes, may he find us faithful and fulfilling our ministries as well. Lord God, you are so good. And man, this just is like medicine. Medicine here at the beginning of 2024 in crazy times. And we have no idea, but we have a sense. This is going to be a crazy year. Not for the journey so much, but the whole world. Definitely the United States of America. And yet we are called. And we are gifted with the spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit of power, love, and self-control. Oh God, if we could just live that out. Power, love, and self-control. Power to witness. Tenacious love, even with our enemies. And self-control when we feel like going nuts. Spouting off. Putting up our fists. But to be self-controlled. Oh Lord, help us in these things. As a church and as individuals, we pray in Jesus' name together. Amen. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.